Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dreaming of the world. Progressive media is today's topic for Spirit in Action, and we'll be talking to Gail Leander Wright about that. But we're going to start out again by briefly checking in with Myron Buckles, recently retired from teaching history in high school for 34 years. This is installment seven of History and Our Best Future, and we'll meet with Myron on his back porch next to the singing birds and the babbling water in his personal pond to talk about the media. Myron, over the past year, I've been reading a lot about how much Bernie has been shut out of the national media until recently, and Hillary has gotten that. So it's been a really unfair race, and he's done incredibly well considering that. And Trump is getting even more coverage, which has everything to do, I suppose, with his leading in the Republican area. Has our public media always been this screwed up, this skewed towards particular people? And what controls it? How has this gone over our past century or two? I think the answer is basically yes. We have always had major corporate media owned by wealthy people in power who have a vested interest in who gets elected to higher office. The difference between now and 100 years ago is that today we have an internet and there are lots of alternative voices out there that can be had if you have access. A hundred years ago, when the earning power of Americans began to go up, the tabloids grew in large part because people were able to afford to buy them. And then we had the wonderful growth of progressive journalism during the progressive era called muckrakers. And the middle class increasingly found out about how bad Standard Oil was, how bad the meatpacking industry was, and it created an outcry, and we got progressive legislation. Today, the Internet is creating that same outcry, and while the corporate media did not cover Sanders at all, the Internet did. I think it's probably a really good example of why the big six and there are only about six conglomerates that control almost everything we hear, read, or see, are really pushing to end what's called net neutrality. And that is so that they can also control the Internet access because that is a direct competition to their monopoly. So 100 years ago, major media would have been newspapers or other forms of print publication. Radio comes in, I think, in the 1920s, television by the 1940s. 
So how has this changed how we perceive the political world? Well, radio really became a, a, a feature of democracy because if you could afford one, you could hear it. And, of course, FDR became famous for his fireside chats, and he could get his message out there. The big corporations, big media corporations of 100 years ago, Hearst and Pulitzer, had a vested interest in making money. And so they actually published the muckrakers. Today, the corporations that control the newspapers are interested in their bottom line. And so in order to make better profit, they have actually cut staff, which is opposite of what happened 100 years ago. And the uh, another issue that we have dealt with since 1949 until the 1990s was the idea that we had a fairness doctrine for broadcast media. And that fairness doctrine was eliminated based on the idea that it violated free speech. And I think that is such an interesting thing because it put into the hands of the major corporations almost complete control of the speech that they want to keep free. Alternative voices are not heard at all. And then, of course, the Internet can fill that void if you have access. I think you identified one period already where media seemed to be a significant helper to the progressive movement. Have there been particular eras? Is there particular media or time when progressive message was particularly powerful through the media? You can make a great argument that the muckrakers during the progressive era forced government to become progressive, that is to actually do something to solve society's ills. Jacob Rees, How the Other Half Lives, alerted people to the fact there was actually poverty. And, of course, we had room for female journalists as well in that whole era. And they did a good job. They really wrote the history. And, and of course, corporations always say they're being picked on. And that is rarely ever the case because they have the money and they have the power. But they don't like it when somebody exposes any practices that they have that can be considered bad. So, yes, the progressive era was driven in large part by very progressive muckraking journalists who exposed the truth. And then we ended up with major change, four amendments in our Constitution. We only have 27 total, and if you subtract the first 10, that means 17 since 1789. Well, we got almost a full fourth of those amendments from uh, 1900 to about 1920. And does that include the repeal of the Prohibition Amendment? No, that goes all the way to 33. So you have 16, 17, 18, and 19. You have the income tax, the direct election of senators. You have the um, elimination of alcohol or the attempt because of the social ill that it was. Then you also have women voting. And all of those things can be traced directly to muckraking journalists. I've got a link to Myron Buckholz and the History and Our Best Future series on the NordenSpiritRadio.org website. Always insightful comments from him, and we're going to get a lot more insight from today's main Spirit in Action guest, Gail Leander Wright. Regular listeners know how important I think it is to get inspirational and educational voices of social change out there, and that's been Gail's devoted work for more than 20 years. She is a book publicist for exactly the kind of authors that we love to have on Spirit in Action, which is how Gail and I met. If a brilliant, inspirational author writes a world-changing book, but no one hears it, does it really make a difference? 
Gail Leander Public Relations does an incredible job of maximizing the impact of these kind of thinkers through all kinds of radio media, including Northern Spirit Radio. I have the greatest respect for her diligent, persistent, and transformative work. So we'll now get Gail Leander right on the phone. Gail, it's an absolute delight to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Delighted to be here with you, Mark. Thanks. I always love my talks with you, and as you fed me really wonderful clients of yours over the years for my radio show, I feel like you're the best source that I can trust. I do have other publicists who come to me, but you have a special slice of authors that you deal with. And on your website, it says specializes in national public radio publicity campaigns for books and authors that inspire and support progressive social change. That felt like my definition of internally what I want to do. How did you come to that? Well, I think I can answer that question best by sort of telling you how it was that I decided that this would be a right livelihood for myself. Specifically, I was in grad school, and as one does in grad school, I was supporting myself with odd jobs. And some of those odd jobs took me to a temporary agency where I was a secretary at various corporations in New York where I was going to school. I ended up at a PR firm, and I was enjoying the work, and they were enjoying me, and I hung around for quite some time, a couple of years. During that time, I was learning a lot about how you publicize things, but they weren't things that necessarily I wanted to publicize. It was you know, products that corporations were putting out. But I was making a buck, and that was a fine thing to do as a young person. Simultaneously, a friend of mine published a book that I thought was very important, and I don't want to give too many uh, details because it's going to betray some incompetencies in the publishing world, but it was a book on an issue that was very important to my heart and that she was having a hard time getting any publicity at all for what I thought was a pretty important book. We were sitting and talking, and I said, you know, I've been temping at a PR firm, and I've learned a little bit about how you get publicity for important issues, and gee, I'd love to just give it a whirl with your book. And of course, she was delighted, and I started calling up some of the same people I'd been calling on behalf of my employer, and just saying, hey, I've got this really cool thing, and would you like to review the book? Would you like to interview the author? It was pretty successful. So a few years later, when I decided that I was going to stop pursuing a PhD and try to have a different kind of a life, I was thinking about, well, what would right livelihood look to me at this stage of my life? And I realized that through grad school and through other networks, I knew an awful lot of authors, or people who knew authors, and probably they were having the same problem that my friend was having. And sure enough, they were. So I started freelancing as a publicist. And before too long, I realized that I had a business on my hands. Specifically, since I'm a leftist and I'm interested in progressive issues and my friends tend to lean left of center and they're intellectuals, I found myself promoting books on feminism and gay and lesbian rights and anti-poverty initiatives and peace and social justice in lots of different forms. As I've continued to do it, of course, I've become more well-informed, and therefore my positions on most social issues have moved to the left, which I think happens to a lot of folks. So I have grown intellectually, spiritually, and emotionally, as has my business. Was this your reading list before you got the job? I mean, all the books that you refer to me, they're wonderful in content, but they're not exactly what you read to kick back. Yeah, well, I went right from grad school into this business, So I was reading challenging material. 
I wasn't reading the range of issues that I read now. I think I, like so many people, avoided reading stuff that was really, really depressing. But now I don't avoid that. I think that, you know, knowing the dark side of human history and current events is part of being an educated person. And now for work, I don't shy away from that. I will say that for fun, I read light stuff. Like what? I read about the history of musical theater. Right now I'm reading two books simultaneously. One is the new book on Hamilton, the Broadway show, which I was given as a present, Hamilton, the Revolution. And the other book that I'm staring at right now is Music Theory Through Musical Theater, an attempt to teach myself more about music. So that's the kind of stuff I do for fun. You know, you had your BA in drama from Berkeley and your MA in performance studies at New York University. On your deathbed, you know, 30, 40, 50 years from now, right? On your deathbed, are you going to say, darn, I wish I hadn't given up my performance career instead of just representing other people, which is great, but gee, I wish I had taken my turn on the stage. Well, I have two answers to that. First is I was never interested in my turn on the stage and that my BA in drama and my MA in performance studies both belied my interest in directing and then later my interest in teaching. I was not a good actor, and I knew that young, but I was a pretty good director. Sometimes I think, gee, in a different economy, it might have made sense for me to give that a few more years and to get to see how I might more fully expand my skill set as a director. I would have liked giving it more time. But, you know, I at some point in my mid-20s realized I had to make a living, and that's okay. I make a fine living in doing work that I really enjoy. The other part of that is, surprisingly to me, at about the age of 50, I started singing for fun, and surprisingly that led to a small bit of performance that I'm doing locally with a group of really fabulous women. And I didn't expect to be a member of a singing group called Tongue in Cheek, but I am, and I perform fairly regularly. And we should only be so lucky as to hear you sing a lot of it. I've seen some clips of it on via the web, but I think I would love to attend one of your performances. So how would people track down this group of performances that you're part of locally? Yeah. The website is tongueincheeksingers.wordpress.com. Tongueincheeksingers.wordpress.com. I'll have a link to that on Northern Spirit Radio so that people can track down and hopefully they can come and see one of your live performances. How often do you do this? Is this a thing that's monthly or yearly or quarterly? Or It's three times a year. And we've been doing it for five years. So we've got quite a few shows under our belt. And they're always a little sarcastic. They're always tongue-in-cheek. They're a little bit racy. They're probably rated PG-13. They've always got some kind of a little fun, racy, raunchy twist to them. They're a great deal of fun. I would expect no less of you. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about the people that you represent for your business. Again, the business is called Gail Leander Public Relations. And so when you look for the website, it's GLPR, Gail Leander Public Relations, GLPRbooks.com. So name a couple of the well-known and maybe lesser-known people that you've represented, Gail. Sure. I've had the pleasure to work with uh, Jim Lowen several times. He's quite well-known for the book called Lies My Teacher Told Me, but he and I met one another after that book had already taken off. 
and I have subsequently worked with him on a number of books, primarily about historical revisionism and how it is that people are trying to use, let's say, the Civil War in ways that most people who have a fine understanding of history would think are inappropriate. So Jim goes around the country and looks at the ways that people have tried to gloss over the ugly history of racism in this country. He's just a tremendous guy and a great, great writer. Let's see, who else have I worked with that people would know well? I've worked with Robert Frank, who does books on economic inequality, and Bob Kuttner on the same beat. I've worked with Amy Goodman. I've worked with Laura Flanders, both well-known to progressive radio audiences. But more than the famous folks that I've worked with, however, are a slew of academics and activists for whom writing is just an extension of the other work that they do. So they're not folks who are destined to become well-known for their writing, but rather their writing serves some sort of a social justice agenda. And I would say that is probably 90% of my 750-person client list. Mm-hmm. You did ignore Francis Moore LaPay, Frankie. Sure, I ignored so many of my people. <laughs> please, please list them. The Dalai Lama was one of your clients. It's true. I've worked on a couple of books where author credit is given to His Holiness, but in fact, he wasn't there doing interviews. Rather, his co-author on those books was the person I was representing. His Holiness would give lectures, and then there'd be someone else who would come along and turn those lectures into books, and that was the person that I had the pleasure of working with. But you actually worked directly with Helen Caldicott, didn't you? I did, a number of times, actually. I worked on her memoir, and then I've worked on two subsequent books with Helen, and I adore her. And evidently, you were able to eke out some time to get some face-to-face time with someone named Betsy Leander Wright, who is a really wonderful... Betsy Leander Wright, the fabulous economic justice activist and scholar. Betsy Leander Wright is my life partner, and she's written three books, all of which I've worked on. You know, I was wondering the name of your agency, Gail Leander Public Relations, is not Gail Leander Wright. Is that because it was named before you and Betsy were... full item or is that That is correct. I started my business after Betsy and I had gotten together and assumed that we'd be sharing a life path, but before we had taken the step of hyphenating our names. And Gail Leander Wright Public Relations feels clunky. On the other hand, it would probably does more it does definitely more accurately represent my name in the way that I use my name every day. But it just feels like a long name for a company. So you've got this rich assortment of people you deal with. Let's talk about the line that you draw to include people in or exclude them from your client list, because you do turn down people who would like to be represented by you. Could you give us an example of something that was near the line that got in or didn't get in? Yeah, I think we sometimes have to make pretty tough decisions around books that are important topics, but they're not necessarily well-written or well-produced books. So self-published authors come to us a lot. And the topic seems perfectly fine, but it looks like an amateur production, either because of its physical look or because of the fact that there was no professional editing or other advice for the author that needed it. So we turn down self-published books a lot. It's very, very, very rare that we do take one, even if it's a perfectly good leftist topic, that the person writing it has to really have something original to contribute rather than simply wanting to put a book out. So do you have examples of books that you would turn down versus the ones that made it over the line and you accepted? 
Yeah. I mean, first of all, I'm only going to do something. When I say I, I mean myself and my longtime colleague, Peter Bermudis. We're only going to represent books that we think are contributing in some way to making the world a better place, in our completely biased uh, opinion. Now, there's lots of great books out there that do that work, but the book has to somehow fit a social justice agenda. And, and pretty much we're looking for authors who are embedded in some sort of social change community. That said, we're really happy to talk to any leftist author at all who's got something to say. The books that we turn down tend to be either self-published books, which are very difficult to promote for a lot of reasons, or books where we just feel like the topic has been covered pretty thoroughly and that the author is not making any real contribution in this particular work. Can you think of maybe examples where you already did or didn't turn down an author because they weren't quite left-leaning enough or they were too much of a mixed bag? I think of libertarians in this scope. I mean, Ron Paul, yeah, all of these uh, left-leaning ideals he holds and these other ones that are usually considered right-leaning. Have you run into authors like that who you've had to say, just not clear about this? I don't know that we have. It's usually fairly easy for us to figure out if we like the politics or not. I would say that if I had to come up with like the stripe of authors that we turn down most frequently, I would say probably folks who are self-published and new agey. There's a lot of books where someone has a spiritual practice and they think it's going to make the world a better place for everyone, and I'm just not on board with that, nor am I that interested in it. So someone like Andrew Harvey, if you know of him, I mean, he he talks about spiritual activism. He's really trying to equip people that way, but he's coming straight out of spiritual practice. Uh, all He's gone deeply. Do you know his work, and would that be a, a non-fit for you? I do not know his work, but I will say that from what you've described, it wouldn't be. As a matter of fact, Mark, I'm going to remind you, if you don't remember, that the way that you and I met is I was representing a book called Spirit in Action by Linda Stroud. It was about how one balances one's spiritual work and one's work life so that they're synergistic. And so I was Googling the title, and I think I even Googled radio because I was curious as to what kind of radio Linda had done already. And there you popped up with a book with a radio show <laughs> called Spirit in Action. I thought, I need to know this guy because so many of my clients do come to their social justice work out of some sort of a spiritual motivation. So I'm not against it. I just can't represent things that are superficial. Mushy. Well, mushy. Mushy. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I have the same issue. Again, there's a lot of publicists come to me, and sometimes people who are coming from a new age perspective feel to me like there's some depth and real engagement there. And other ones, it strikes me closer to navel gazing. So I sometimes have books directed in my direction that are essentially self help, but with the purpose of achieving greater activism in the world. For me, sometimes the needle goes one way, and sometimes it goes right. the other way. Me too. Linda Stout, was that a case where your needle was clearly embedded on the correct side? Yeah, I mean, I've known Linda for a couple of decades, so that made it pretty easy. And you knew she was also Quaker. Yeah. Right? 
then you see there's a radio program called Spirit in Action, which has this Quaker dude with it. <laughs> right. Quaker dude. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That was a cool moment when I met you. It's continued to be totally cool with me. I mean, just I really find a match of our criteria. So that's really helpful. So when you come to me with a book, I'm always pretty sure. You've also told me that now when you're reading books, you add this question criteria because I always want to look into what's the motivation, usually the spiritual religious background that prepares one and sustains one in this kind of work. How has it changed the way that you do your work to know me? Oh, isn't that a nice question? Well, I mean, it is true that, you know, Mark, I don't send you everything, you know, because I think, eh, I don't really see what, what about this book is uniquely Mark, you know? There's plenty of people who'd like to interview this person, but I'm not seeing Mark's fingerprint on this. But as I read books, you know, some percentage of the books, I read something. For example, I was just reading a book, and in the acknowledgments, the author starts out by thanking the creator. And I thought, well, I wonder what that means. And I wonder if Mark would like to ask her what that means. So I do read my books with an eye towards, would this be a cool guest for Mark? It's true. It's true. (laughs) And I don't do that for everybody, I I swear. I don't have margin notes on all my friends in the radio, but I do for you. (laughs) Well, I feel feel honored. And actually, your collective energy, not just yours, of course, Peter Bermudis is part of this, and also then your life partner with Betsy there, who is such an inspirational person in herself. I feel like there's a nexus of energy that's right out of Massachusetts there. That's Oh, that's nice. Well, Massachusetts is radiating for lots of reasons. It's a cool place to live. And I still don't understand how some elections happen there. I mean, how is it that certain state senators you have have had, how did they get there? I don't get it. I don't have a really deep analysis of this. I can only tell you what Betsy has told me, which is that a lot of Massachusetts voters feel like it's really important to have a dialectic. And that given that the state house is going to be filled with Democrats, we collectively often elect moderate Republicans to be governor. Which is a dying breed and someone's keeping them alive. We don't want to see too many species eradication going on. Yeah, I mean, I'm not telling you that I vote for Republicans. I don't. But that tends to be the the pulse of the voters often, not always, but often. Our governor right now has very, very, very high approval ratings off the charts. So So go figure, right? Yeah, go figure, right. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about the specifics of why you do the work you do. Now, again, you started this in the early 90s. And so... 1992, things were very different. The internet as we know it today did not exist. That's so true. And you were a radio, I mean, you've been promoting for radio, not for TV, and you're not promoting via just the internet, someone's podcast. Are you tempted to change that? Has the world changed enough in those ensuing 20-some years that it feels like your focus would be better served elsewise? Well, I didn't start out doing nothing but radio. I did everything. And what everything was, was I did print and TV and radio for the first several years. And it became clear to me after a few years, two things. One, that the books that were really suited for print attention, you know, books that were going to get reviewed, say, in the New York Times, typically came from corporate houses. And I you know, I've represented plenty of books that come from corporate houses, but what they've got over these small independent presses is they actually do have a PR team and that that PR team values book reviews in the New York Times. 
So to the extent that my authors were appropriate candidates for those types of reviews, the publisher generally was taking care of that. And that, you know, perhaps there's a little more I could do, but I wasn't really needed. And that what publishers were neglecting was radio beyond the really big, you know, and very important nationally syndicated public radio stuff. That publishers would go after NPR and then they would say, well, okay, we've done our job. And that radio turned me on for for two reasons. One is there was a, a niche and a, a need that I could fill. But also I, I believed then and I continue to believe that hearing people's voices is a very persuasive uh, it's persuasive and it's a, it's a great way to take in information, especially challenging information. You want the person who knows something to tell you about it. So radio is a very cool medium for serious books. And I think, you know, if my goal was to sell books, then I probably would be more deeply invested in social media, which I think is a terrific way to tell people about books that, that are out there. My goal is not to sell books. My goal is to participate in movements for social change. And I believe that social media is a great way to organize events. And it's a great way to talk about issues. And it's certainly a fine way to communicate ideas. But it's not a medium that I want to spend my time putting energy into. It just isn't exciting to me. And I have the privilege of doing the work that I want to do in the way that I want to do it. So I'd rather not be typing all day. Mm -hmm. But other people should and do. And it's terrific. We're going to get back to more of these ideas with Gail Leander right in a moment, but I want to remind you all that you are listening to Spirit in Action, which is Northern Spirit Radio production on the web. Where do you find us? NorthernSpiritRadio.org, and that's O-R-G, like organic, not commercial. On that site, you'll find links to our guests. So when you want to find Gail Leander Wright and GLBRbooks.com, you come via our site, you get there quickly. You can also find a link to tongueandcheeksingers.wordpress.com where you'll see her singing some wonderful songs. It's an aspect I only learned about her a couple months ago, and I'm so happy I did. But there's lots more links to our guests. And also, there's a place for you to post comments. And we love two-way communication. I'm doing my half. You can do your half by posting a comment when you visit our site. There's also a place to donate for Northern Spirit Radio. That is how this full-time work is supported. It's not by the government. It's not by the corporations. It's by your generosity. So please donate when you come. But even more important, I'd prefer that you start out by supporting your local community radio station. They provide a slice of news and of music that you just get nowhere else on the American airwaves. And since we're talking to Gail Leander Wright, and she deals with both public Public radio and the community radio folks, you can hear the difference that maybe happens through those different institutions. Again, we're speaking with Gail Leander Wright. Her business is called Gail Leander Public Relations, and her partner in that work is Peter Bermudez. And according to their website, they specialize in national public radio publicity campaigns for books and authors that inspire and support progressive social change. And that's really just wonderful work close to my heart. And it's, it's, it seems like it's perfectly complementary to the mission of Northern Spirit Radio, as I've been doing it now for nearly 11 years. So we were just talking a little bit about the work that you do, the niche that you occupy in this publicity stuff. You said way back when we were first talking, Gail, that 
you felt like some people were being underserved by the publishing houses, the, the publishers. Are you doing work that publishers should be doing or maybe that they used to do? Well, that's a great question. I think there is a myth of the grand old days of publishing when every author got a tremendous amount of publicity support for their books. And I don't believe, and this is something I don't know firsthand, but I've talked to an awful lot of people who've worked in-house, I don't believe that was ever the case. And that I think publishers, at least in, in the past many decades, have chosen their list, you know, an A, B, and a C list, and A-list authors, John Grisham, got and still get a lot of publicity support, and B-list got a little bit less, and then there were some just kind of niche books that publishers put out, kind of hoping that a spark would catch, but without any real effort on their behalf, and I think that was always true. And that if you take a look at a big publisher's list, the books that turn me on are probably going to be on the C-list, honestly. Which isn't to say that I don't work with some A-listers now, and I do, and those A-listers still do get a tremendous amount of support. Where I come to play when there is an A-list author is digging into communities in a way that, that publishers never had the resources to it and don't now. So that let's imagine that I'm collaborating with a New York corporate house on a big, hardback, important book, and the author's going on a 10-city tour you can be sure that in each of those tour cities, the publisher is going to be contacting the daily paper, the local uh, news channels, and the NPR affiliate in that town. And they should do all that. But as you and I know, Mark, in most every town, there's some kind of community radio that's looking at things from a fresh perspective and a, a needed perspective. And the publisher, I've never really met a publisher who has invested in that type of radio. They may have relationships here and there that they've kind of nurtured over the years, but they're not focusing on that. And they don't know the people there and what the people there want and need in a guest the way that I do. So it's a long answer to a simple question. Well, let's talk about some of the outlets that you lead your authors to. And again, the local outlet always has their choice. You you bring up an idea with a book to me, and I say, well, yes, no, maybe that's a fit, maybe it's not. So talk about some of those outlets. Who do you go to? I mean, where are the fruitful places for these seeds to grow? Let me answer that by telling you a big city example, and then I'll tell you a small town example. So a big city example would be Los Angeles. And in Los Angeles is one of the five flagship NPR affiliates, KPFK in North Hollywood. And there's a woman there who I've known for about 10 years named Sonali Kalhatkar. And she has been doing the morning show for a real long time. And I honestly, you know, Sonali, are you listening? Because I say this all the time. She's one of the smartest people I've ever met. Her breadth of knowledge is tremendous. She's authoritative where she knows a lot, which is in a lot of places. And she's inquisitive where it's an issue that's new to her. And she brings a real gravitas and intellectual depth to her interviews. And I would follow her anywhere. So that's an example from a big city. Let me think about an example from a small town. So out in uh, Concord, New Hampshire, there's a woman named Arnie Arneson who famously ran for and lost the governorship some years ago. And she's a political junkie. And if I have a book that's on electoral politics or on the electoral system or a book just about how how's democracy working out for us these days, Arnie's a go-to person. 
And you wouldn't necessarily expect to find that in Concord, New Hampshire, though she can be seen on MSNBC and she can be heard on radio stations around the country. Her own home is Concord, and that's where she's dug down roots and doing really fantastic radio there. There must be cities where this just seems second nature. I mean, WORT down in Madison is one, or if you go down to Berkeley, of course we expect it to be there. And uh, Boulder, Colorado, what's the station there? KGNU. KGNU, of course. (laughs) Yeah, no, these are examples I could pull out. They're all fine, and there's excellent people everywhere there. And then there's places like Northern Spirit Radio and Spirit in Action come out of Eau Claire, Wisconsin that nobody's ever heard of. And they can't spell it correctly once they've heard it because they don't know French. (laughs) Right. So one of the lines that you draw is that you want nonfiction books. And this became clear to me. I didn't actually realize it. I, I have the sense that fiction actually changes the world very significantly. You put it into an idiom that people can relate to. But I suspect that this is part of my personal taste. When I'm not reading the kind of books that you send me, Gail, I very often like to read science fiction because that's how I first, as a, a straight man, got a clearer sense of how, I mean, I I actually had read Ruby Fruit Jungle and near then, but before that, I read Robert Heinlein's book, I Will Fear No Evil, which is about this guy who's very old, richest man in the world kind of thing, very old, his mind's in great shape, body's going to go down. He has a brain transplant and wakes up in the body of a 25-year-old woman. And so, wait a minute, I've been a man for a hundred years, thought lusty, whatever thoughts as as a man, I thought everything that, and I'm in a woman's body. That for me is a perfect method to introduce people to non-conforming gender ideas. And uh, so fiction, I find very fruitful in terms of expanding my consciousness, but that's not a place that you tend to go with GLPR. I'm not a big fiction reader in my personal life. I've always been a non-fiction reader. And I find that fiction is very, very, very difficult to promote. There aren't a lot of radio shows that really enjoy talking to authors of fiction unless they're well-known. So it kind of worked out. There's some synergy there that it made sense for me to rarely, rarely, not never, but rarely represent fiction. Have the fruitful outlets changed over the years? And here I'm particularly thinking that Public radio is probably less edgy than it used to be, that community radio stations still have the full breadth of political opinion, but that it feels to me, having listened to a lot of public radio here, that perhaps they don't want to push as far to the left or the right, certainly, as maybe they used to do. Have you noticed that in terms of your promotions? I don't know. You know, I've been doing this for 25 years, and I've always felt that progressive, I mean, really progressive issues did have a harder time on NPR than liberal issues. And I don't know that that's gotten worse or better. It may well have been, but not that I've noticed. There's another item. Maybe it's a little bit of personal pride here. I'm not a fast reader, but I do read the books that you send me before I interview the author, which means there's more of a lag time because you know, there's a number of questions I could ask them without having ever read the book or having read just a few pages of it or skimmed it. I actually read the whole book, which I think it usually surprises them. What percentage of the people that you send out to do you think actually read the book before they interview the author? I don't know the answer to that. I know that my clients remark when they talk to you, wow, he really read the book. 
And just this morning, I got an email from a client who said, you know, I hate to tell you this, Gail, but I don't think they even crack the spine. So I know that it does happen, but I don't know what percentage, Mark. Uh, well, I don't blame them. I mean, it takes a lot of time. And if you're doing a daily radio show as opposed to weekly, as I do, the opportunity to read a full book, unless you're a speed reader, which I certainly am not. Are you a speed reader, Gail? I'm a fast reader. I'm a careful, but I'm a fast reader. And does that mean that when you're reading, you don't notice what happens in the world? You know, the roof falls down in the other room and you don't notice it. Are you one of no, those people? No, no, I'm not immersive in that way. I just read, you know, I think I read fast, but not so that the world falls away. And when I'm reading for work, I typically try to do it in kind of small chunks because it's just part of the rest of the work that I'm doing. So I'll read for an hour. I'll answer email for an hour. I'll go back to the book, that kind of thing. The fast reader that we're talking to, by the way, folks, is Gail Leander Wright. She founded Gail Leander Public Relations. Those initials would be GLPR with their website, glprbooks.com. She has represented in 25 years, uh, 750, whatever you said, authors and all these books that are really trying to lead the world in the direction that I, as one of the principals in Northern Spirit Radio, want to move the world. There's so much transforming and healing of the world that we need, and Gail is providing them the publicity. Folks who would go underrepresented because I'm afraid that it doesn't represent the big dollars to a corporate society. Are you very disdainful of corporate society? I mean, you have to work hand in glove with it a lot in order to do what you do. Oh, boy. I'm not very disdainful of corporate society. It sort of implies that I am disdainful of the people who work for corporations, and I'm not. I um, have critiques of corporate power and excessive CEO pay and a lot of other things, but I'm not disdainful of people in publishing for sure. Well, and I imagine you can't. I mean, part of it is about keeping the conversation open. And every time you take a moderate source and you introduce into it some of the authors with maybe a further left-leaning perspective, that is opening up the eyes of a bit more of the world. So it seems extremely important. Yeah. And I have no beef with many liberal opinions. You know, liberals are my brothers and sisters. I am not one. I'm a progressive. But you know, corporations are often doing a great job getting liberal ideas out into the world. And some, in fact, are getting progressive ideas out into the world. So I don't want to sever any relationships just based on the structure of an organization. One of the things that's happened over the years since I've dealt with you, Gail, is that you bring up a person to me and then you announce their name. And it's always got this Jewish sound to it, or not ah! always. <laughs> and, and often, often, the Feinbergs <laughs> and the Goldsteins of the world, often. And is this just coincidental, or is this some part of the master plan? Or, they are, is it because they're the leading social activists? Or what can you say about why this rich treasure trove that you've brought to me, why many of them have yeah. Jewish names? Well, just demographically, Jews are overrepresented among leftists and among intellectuals. And where leftists meet intellectuals, you often find a, an author. So I think the chances are good that on anybody's list of progressive authors, there's a lot of Jews, certainly overrepresented. I'm also, you know, I'm Jewish. So people find me through friends of friends. They find me through friends of friends. I put in the upward inflection. Or that when people are talking to me, when potential clients are talking to me, there is, as my partner would say, a convergence of habitus. Habitus? Habitus. 
Betsy will be very upset if I misrepresented it. We find each other to be somewhat culturally similar and socially similar, and we resonate. And so I think more Jews hire me than would be true if I were not Jewish. Can you think of some of the names that you just find that kind of identity with or they're part of your clientele? Gar Alperwitz, I hadn't actually read his stuff before you wow, introduced me to him. Yeah. Oh, an awesome thought. Just incredible. Can you think of other names that maybe are underrepresented in society, but certainly bring that kind of riches? I work frequently and over over a two-decade period of time with a really remarkable writer named Larry Ty. And Larry's known for his great reporting at the Boston Globe, where he was for many, many years. He's also the author of several books, most of which do not have Jewish content. He wrote one book called Homelands, which was about Jews in diaspora. And I represented that book. But I also represented a book about the great baseball player, Satchel Paige, and through his career, a remarkable conversation about race in America. I represented his book on Superman, who Larry claims and backs up this claim well that he was a Jewish superhero. And Larry's got a great analysis of why that would be true. Nobody thinks of Superman as Jewish or didn't before Larry's book came out. So his current book on Bobby Kennedy obviously isn't a Jewish topic. Bobby, as we all know, was Catholic. And Larry has a great conversation in that book about how Bobby's Catholicism spurred him to social justice. So certainly it's not only Jews that are looking towards their religion of origin to prompt them to acts of great, bold, compassionate social justice. Larry and I have not really talked about resonating together because we have Jewish backgrounds, but there is something unspoken between Jews where you sort of mostly sometimes feel comfortable, more often than not. That's true of any minority, I'm sure. Actually, that's partially my experience. When I lived in the Peace Corps in West Africa, people that I would never connect with necessarily in their home country, France or Belgium or Canada, there wouldn't be any special spark. But given that we are all expatriates in a foreign country, we felt our differences diminish and we felt closer to in face of a society which is so unified and different than us. I think that's a perfectly relevant example to share. And of course, I have interviewed Larry about Satchel Page. You did direct him in my direction, and I hope Bobby Kennedy comes my way too. But It will, it will. It's brilliant. <laughs> I want to name a couple of our common connections. Steve Chase is someone you know, and yeah. I, he's one of my heroes personally. Talk about your connection with him. You know, he's my next door neighbor for several years, and Betsy knew him, and I like him. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, I, Not much. But if he was your next door neighbor, is that just, you know, you were living in the suburbs next to one another? Or is it because you were living in a place where that kind of thing percolates, the, the leftist social justice thing? Yeah. So next door to us is a group house, community living. And there, there used to be a number of them in the neighborhood. I think that's the only one that's still communal. And Steve lived there for quite some time. But honestly, we just said hello in the driveway and went to potlucks together occasionally. Good guy. And Betsy has known him longer than I have, but yeah, I, I didn't get to know him very well. Well, and now that he lives, you know, within spitting distance of Philadelphia, you're not likely to run into him up there. Yeah, although, you know, we've got friends in common, friends of friends and this kind of thing. He's not far from us, but there's a few links between me and Steve. I have nothing but good feelings about him, but I don't know him well. And is Steve also a pool shark? Did you ever meet him over a pool table? No, but uh, I'm thrilled to hear that he might be. 
<laughs> Actually, what I noticed was that you were... A pool shark. No, that's a publicity <laughs> picture. Ah, No, I was excited to think that, that Steve might be a pool shark. <laughs> no, I don't really know how to play pool, but I, but I look like I do in that picture, don't I? Oh, yeah, right. I'm kind of assuming that when you break it, you're just going to run the table. That's how it looks. Whatever that means, that's what I'm going to do. No, I know what that means. That's very cute. <laughs> Social organizing can be so encompassing. And so clearly you've got part of your heart heavily invested in this work that you're doing, Gail. There's also a need to go home. And the problem that I end up having is, you know, I I promote someone's book idea, activism, and it would also feel natural to some degree for me to be involved in their political campaign or their getting the word out in various other organizing How have you been able to keep yourself from complete exhaustion as you put your heart and soul into the promotion of these books? It's a great question. I'm pretty boundaried. I try very hard to stick to regular working hours, which means for me now in my late 50s, I work Monday through Thursday 9 to 5, and Fridays are for music and for other things. I don't take calls on the weekend. I don't take calls at night. Somebody actually did call in a tizzy on Saturday morning at 9 a.m. needing something from me immediately. And since I work at home, I did hear it, and I did respond with an email giving her the information she needed. But I would say that that happens less often than once every seven years. I mean, it just doesn't happen. The things can't wait till Monday. Though I will show up at author events and be supportive and be happy to meet my authors at events, I go to one event per author unless there's something really special happening. If somebody you know, needs me more than once and it's got to be me, I will be there for them. But I really try to keep it that way. And my authors are always involved in organizing, almost all of them. And I don't lend my energy towards their organizing efforts. Except for the promotions, of course. Yeah, but that's work. You know, I mean, it really is. I really am pretty boundaried. And it's because... I'm in this for the long haul. It's been 25 years, and I think it's going to be a lot more years. And I'm attentive to not burning out. And at any given time, I'm working with lots of authors, and I'm really attentive to giving them everything I promise to do. But not. But if I, if I start giving more than that, I'm just not going to have it for the long haul. Yeah, I can imagine yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Are there organizing tasks that you take on simply because they're your tasks in the off-the-clock hours? Yeah. I mean, at different times, I've been involved in the struggle for transgender rights. Before that, and when it was more necessary, I was doing gay and lesbian stuff. At different times when there have been struggles, I've shown up in D.C. and I've marched, but I haven't taken on organizing roles in a really long time because I'm doing music. It sounds very sane. I have more of an issue with that. Do you? Tell me. Well, because I'm locally, I'm part of the Quaker meeting here, and there's certain amounts of work that we do there. Or my friend, Myron, who's running for office, who's, you know, I went out on Saturday, you know, spent four or five hours getting signatures for him to be on the ballot, when I knew that that would mean that I was going to be up till 2 a.m. getting my radio programs finished for the week. So I, I, I know I make those choices sometimes. I try and limit them, but, but, but it's Very a hard. Very respected. 
Well, you know, you've been doing such great work for 25 years now. I understand that Peter is more of a partner now than he used to be. Talk about the little changes that are happening in Gail Leander Public Relations. Well, it's super simple, which is that Peter and I have been close colleagues for over 20 years. And typically the structure has been, I mean, for for, for the first while he was sort of working for me. He was assisting me and that didn't last long because, you know, he was fully capable from the moment he stepped foot in my door. So he's been taking on projects. We decide together about the appropriateness of a project, and then we decide together about who's best suited for it and who has the time for it at the time that the time is needed. And that's been working out really lovely with him being in the office about one day a week but working from home lots of times other than that. But his kids are growing up, and, and the youngest is going off to high school, and he doesn't need to be around the house so much. So he'll just be here more often, which means he can take on more work and larger bits of that work. And eventually, because he's a little younger than me, eventually, someday in the distant future, I hope that he'll want to do this work solo after I no longer want to do it. But then he's going to have to get a new website, and it'll be PBPR. It could be PBPR. <laughs> Well, it's great that Peter has more energy to work with you on this kind of thing. And, and you know, the future of glprbooks.com, the Gail Leander Public Relations, is only brightened by his presence there. I've just dealt with him just a small bit because you do get occasional vacations. Occasionally. Theoretically, at least. No, I do. I do. It's part of, it's part of having good boundaries is I take vacations, for sure. There's probably a self-help book that you should probably represent about having good boundaries so you can continue to do this kind of social work long term. <laughs> but yeah, Peter Peter absolutely covers for me on vacation and I cover for him. But more importantly, he fully takes on every little bit of the work for books that he's representing solo. Well, folks, we've been speaking with Gail Leander Wright. Uh, the company, again, is Gail Leander Public Relations. They've been representing books and authors that inspire and support progressive social change for 25 years now. And there's much beautiful future ahead for those authors because of Gail and her co-worker Peter. I love dealing with you, Gail. You get it. I understand. I feel like there's kind of a mind meld going on there. Mm, that's nice. And I'm so thankful that you do your work, bring wonderful folks my direction, because it's exactly the kind of work that I want to hold up to the world. So thank you for bringing those folks to me, and thank you for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Well, thank you, Mark. It's delightful to work with you, and I thoroughly enjoy our relationship. My gratitude to Andrew Jansen for production assistance today, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.